Hello everyone. I'd like to kick off today with a question and it's a very commonplace question but let's see how it lands uh, when talking to my phone. How are you doing? It's a very important question at the moment isn't it? How are you doing? In fact it seems a lot more weighty than it normally would. You see normally the assumption is that when you ask that question everyone's doing okay. I'm fine, you're fine, the world's peachy. And also, uh, we ask the question to people who we generally see pretty regularly, so we kind of know the answer already. But neither of the, those things are, are true at the moment. I mean, you might be fine, and I might be fine, and the world might be peachy, but that wouldn't be the expectation for most of us. And on top of that, we've, we've got another problem. I mean, how do we answer this question in a global pandemic? What does doing well or doing badly actually look like? You could answer possibly, well, I've uh, now successfully streamed every Netflix series that's above a six rating on IMDb. And I reply, well, uh, is that good? Is that bad? I mean, where am I here? You could answer and say, look, things are crazy at the moment. Uh, it's so stressful. I've had to pray more than ever before. Um, is that a thumbs up? Thumbs down? Somewhere in the middle? <laughs> I mean, halfway through the first century, the Apostle Paul, uh, in a roundabout way, asked the same question to some of his friends. How are you doing? And though it was hundreds of years ago and in a completely different country, their situation was remarkably similar to ours. Paul's friends weren't suffering from the effects of the coronavirus, but they were in the midst of religious persecution. So they were having a tough time, basically. And also like us, he hadn't seen them for ages. In fact, he couldn't ask the question to them in person. He had to send his friend Timothy to them uh, with that question so he could then report back to Paul. But for Paul, though, a big difference is when he asked, how are you doing? He had very clear views on what doing well and doing badly looked like. So with all that said, let's look at today's passage and you'll see how he responded to the report that he was given. I'm reading from 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 13. But now Timothy has just returned, bringing us good news about your faith and love. He reports that you always remember our visit with joy and that you want to see us as much as we want to see you. So we have been greatly encouraged in the midst of our troubles and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, because you have remained strong in your faith. It gives us new life to know that you are standing firm in the Lord. How we thank God for you. Because of you, we have great joy as we enter God's presence. Night and day, we pray earnestly for you, asking God to let us see you again to fill the gaps in your faith. May God our Father and our Lord Jesus bring us to you very soon. And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow, just as our love for you overflows. May he, as a result, make your heart strong, blameless and holy as you stand before God our Father, when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people. Amen. So how are they doing? Well, Paul's response to the report was they were doing wonderfully, wasn't it? And how did he come to that conclusion? What were the criteria that he was working with? Well, we see that in the very first verse that was read in chapter 3, verse 6. But now Timothy has just returned, bringing us good news about your faith and love. For Paul... When he asked how you're doing, he was really trying to find out two things. He was trying to find out how your faith was doing and how your love was doing. 
And as we unpack this passage, I too would like to talk about those things, faith and love. And I want us all to consider today how we're doing. But I also want to offer those as kind of goalposts, I guess, to help us give a meaningful answer to that question. So we can get a handle, not just on how we're kind of feeling, but on how we're really doing after a year of living life through a global pandemic. So let's ask the first version of the question. How's your faith doing? First up, it'd probably be best to define what faith is, isn't it? I mean, faith is a common word, both in the church and outside the church, but it's also a word that is uh, widely misunderstood, both inside the church and outside the church. In some circles, some people would take faith to be this kind of peculiar way of living by which you build up a picture of the world around you, not on the basis of evidence or on personal experience, but simply by believing. Faith is seen as the uh, cat poster in the Lego movie. Believe! Oh, why, why should I believe? No, 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 don't ask that question. Just believe! Now, that's not Christian faith, and that's certainly not what Paul is looking for in his Thessalonian friends. No, faith in a Christian sense um, could be much more simply understood as trust. Faith just means trust. And actually trust in a very specific object. I mean, not an object in this case, but a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to note that um, when we talk about having faith in Jesus or trusting in Jesus, that doesn't mean at all closing your eyes to the evidence. Trust is always based on evidence, or at least it should be. Let's give you an example. When I got married to my wife, Gemma, it was an act of trust on both of our parts. We were saying to each other, basically, that we trust you to be a good spouse. But we didn't just do that on a whim. We'd accumulated a whole load of evidence up to that point. Evidence about how we got on with each other, evidence uh, and experience of each other's personalities, each other's characters, how we responded to stress, how we showed kindness to each other. And on the basis of all that, one snowy day in Bedford, I proposed to her and she said yes. And in both of those actions, they, they were actions of trust based upon the evidence that we had. Now for Paul, there was a point where he decided to put his trust in Jesus, and he did it in a similar way based on the evidence he had. And so considering all this evidence, Paul put his trust in Jesus, and then he spent all his energy traveling all around the Mediterranean, uh, Middle East and Europe uh, in those days, uh, presenting to people this Jesus as one who deserved other people's trust too. And these Thessalonians that Paul is writing to, well, they were among those who heard what Paul had to say and decided, yep, we would like to trust in Jesus too. And for Paul, it was that trust that is the most important thing. And to see this, consider the situation that we find in this passage. These Thessalonians were not just people Paul preached to once or twice. They were his friends. And the story is that shortly after planting the church in Thessalonica, Paul was driven out of the city, uh, away from his friends. And away from his friends, he became worried about them because he couldn't find out what was going on with them. And he knew they'd be suffering. That's what happened in those days if you followed Jesus. Um, but he, he couldn't find out what was actually going on. And so when all other means failed, he sent his friend Timothy to ask them the question from today. How are you doing? And from the reading we saw today, we see Paul's response to that. Now, we've seen what Paul wrote, 
But I, I, I imagine, I wonder what Timothy actually said to him. I, I imagine the report would have gone something like this. I'm using my imagination, but I, I think this is fair from what we know from the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Here's what Timothy said. Paul's like, well, how are they doing then? Tell me the report, Timothy. And Timothy would have said something like, well, Paul, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. I'll start with the bad news. The bad news is, you know what, they're, they're really suffering. They're still being persecuted. Some of them have lost their jobs. Others have been ostracised from their family. There are others who are at risk of going to prison. I mean, it's tough for these guys. But on the plus side, they have remained strong in their faith. Now, if you got a report like that, how would you respond? For me personally, I'll be honest, I would assume that was a bad report of how things were going. <laughs> I'd be penning a, a response along the lines of, oh no, I'm so sorry for how things have been so horrible. That sounds like an absolute nightmare. Not for Paul. It's not the tone of what he said at all, is it? No, he saw this as good news. Now, listen, it wasn't that he didn't care about their suffering. No, it was that Paul knew this thing. He knew that if these guys kept trusting Jesus, in a sense, it's all good. Because he knew that Jesus was trustworthy and can bring peace and joy and hope in the midst of any trouble. And on the flip side of that, you know what? If the report had come back that they'd stopped trusting Jesus, it wouldn't have mattered if they'd won the lottery or they had found their dream romantic partner or they'd landed their perfect job. For Paul, still, that would have been terrible news. Because he knew that you could have all of those things and more, but without the peace and the joy and the hope that Jesus gives, it would mean absolutely nothing. So how are you doing? Well, let's put the question a little differently. Are you still strong in your trust in Jesus after a year of COVID? Now, if the answer to that question is yes, whatever else is going on, Paul would say this to you. Fantastic. Good news. That's great. Well done. That doesn't mean that the bad things don't matter. But it means, as far as Paul's concerned, that you have all that you need to turn those trials into joys. Be encouraged. But actually, Paul wasn't just encouraged by the good news about their faith. He was also encouraged by good news about their love as well. In a sense, when he was asking, how are you doing? He was asking, how's your faith doing? But he was also asking, how's your love doing? Now, in a sense, this comes a little bit out of the blue. From what I've said so far, it's kind of looked like faith was the only thing that Paul really cared about. But now he throws love into the mix too. So what's Paul doing? Well, to see this, you've got to understand that for Paul, faith and love were not as different as we would often see them as being. In fact, you could say that Paul saw them as flip sides of the same coin. And actually, it wasn't just Paul who thought like this. Jesus had the same opinion. Listen to what Jesus uh, says in John chapter 13, 34 to 35. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You see, for Jesus and Paul, lives of love are the necessary and inevitable result of genuine trust in Jesus. 
If you are a disciple of Jesus, this is the words that Jesus used, that, that means someone who follows Jesus, someone who trusts in Jesus, that trust will show itself through love. So in a sense, Paul isn't throwing something new in here. He's simply fleshing out what faith looks like when lived out in the real world. Faith in Jesus is never just a private experience. It's not just something you think about or decide in your mind. No, it must be lived out. Otherwise, it's not faith. And actually, when we remember what I said before, that faith is trust, I think this is easier to understand. Imagine uh, you were going bungee jumping, for example, and you get to the top and the instructor goes, do you trust this bungee rope? And you reply, yep, definitely trust it. However, you refuse to jump. It would have to be included that despite your words to the contrary, however much you repeated them, you actually didn't trust the bungee jump, bungee jump rope. (laughs) The same is true of Jesus. Jesus loved. He lived a life of love. He loved in his death. The Bible tells us that God is love himself. And actually, the personification of that love is Jesus. He's love in 3D. To trust him then is not just to say, I trust that you will love me. It's to to accept his love, yes, but it's also saying, I trust that love is the best way to live. And this is what Paul sees in the Thessalonians. And it's another cause for delight for him. We see him mention this a little bit more in the next chapter in this letter. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 10, Paul writes this. But we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other, for God himself has taught you to love one another. Indeed, you already show your love for all the believers throughout Macedonia. Now, this all sounds lovely. Pun intended. Um, But like we did with faith, we do have to do one more thing before we land all this. And that is to define what Paul means by love. Whenever anyone says the word love, you probably need to do some decoding because it can mean such a vast array of different things to different people. Well, we don't have time to do a thorough exploration of what the Bible teaches about love uh, across the board. But I think we can draw a few things out of this passage because Paul himself starts to pinpoint what he means by this word, I think, in the in the passage that we've just heard. I think starting with Paul's prayer in verse 12 helps us. Paul prays in verse 12, as we heard, and may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow just as our love for you overflows. Two things here. Firstly, love for Paul overflows. It starts focused in one place or on one group of people, and then it flows out further afield. We saw already a minute ago in a, Chapter four, verse 10, you love each other and also all the brothers in Macedonia. In chapter five, 15, he says a similar thing. Always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Do you see? For Paul, love starts with each other, which means other people in the Christian community. And then as you love others in the church, you develop habits of love that overflow to everyone everywhere. So firstly, love overflows. Secondly, He uses the example of himself and his team that were with him as a model of how this actually looks like in practice. I want your love to overflow, he says, just as our love overflowed you. Remember how we loved you? That was a model for you, for you to follow in how you love others. 
Now, let me see this. I think it becomes a little clearer what Paul is doing all through this letter. I don't know if you've noticed this as we've uh, gone through this uh, series of talks, but Paul keeps going on about how he feels about the Thessalonians and how he acted out that in practice. He really goes to town on this. He regularly stresses that he has this deep affection for them, deep longing for them. And also that his relationship with them is a family relationship. So in chapter two, verse one, he calls them brothers. In chapter two, verse seven, he talks about how he cares for them like a mother cares for her children. In chapter two, verse 11, he switches it and now he's treating them like how a father would treat his children. And what's the practical outworking of all this? Well, we see it in today's passage. He actually wants to see them. This is what it says in verse six, if you remember. Timothy reports that you always remember our visit with joy and that you want to see us as much as we want to see you. And he uh, states this over and over again. I long to see you. He keeps saying it. Now, why is Paul saying these things? Well, he's saying them because he feels that way towards the Thessalonians. He's not being insincere. But I think there is another reason why he keeps describing his love repeatedly and in so much detail. He's presenting it as a model for them to follow in their love for one another. The Thessalonian church wasn't meant to be a service provider or an organisation. No, it's meant to be a family where people actually care for each other and want to spend time together. For Paul, that's what a community of faith should always look like. Because that's the kind of love you would expect to naturally spring from genuine trust in Jesus. And then, of course, overflow to everyone outside of that community. So when Timothy brings back the report, you know what, Paul, that was the love that I saw in the Thessalonian church. Paul is delighted. How's their love doing? It's doing absolutely great. It's funny because I'm recording this talk on a Thursday afternoon. Um, Sun's going down. You can probably tell from the the light. And in a couple of hours, our community group are having our first year birthday party. Our little gang has uh, met up every Thursday evening with maybe one or two weeks off ever since the beginning of the first lockdown. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, Ethan DeMello noticed that it would be one year um, and suggested we had a party. And together with uh, Emily Fletcher and Joss Spear and maybe some others in the group as well, he they've been working on this party this evening. I'm really looking forward to it. Now, that might sound like a, a small, frivolous thing. But you know what? There's something about that that seems to resonate with me, uh, with the spirit I see that Paul is encouraging in the Thessalonian church. We don't just meet up because we think we should, but we meet up because we like to see each other and we want to celebrate our community. From reports I've heard from around our church central churches over the last year, whether you throw community group parties or not, the general feel seems to be very similar everywhere. This year, maybe more than ever, It seems that we've realised that church is not a service to consume or a corporation to invest in, but it's a group of people that we love and we want to celebrate being together with. And when I hear of Paul saying, I long to see you, I made every effort to come to see you. I think of all of you who've made every effort to push through the obstacles of Zoom fatigue and dodgy Wi-Fi to not give up meeting together with people from the church. I think of those of you who've been working in your jobs harder than ever 
and juggling maybe personal tragedy, depression, anxiety, and all the craziness of the last year. And still, you've clocked in week after week to prayer meetings and community groups and Sunday mornings and Bible studies and this and this and this. And then even after all that, you'd have thought you, you lot would be tired by now. But I keep hearing from people, I can't wait to get back together. I can't wait to see everyone when restrictions are lifted. Paul would see all this and he'd say, well, how are you doing? You're doing great. Your love is just where it should be. This is what I'd expect to see in people who trust in Jesus, the king of love. When considering the last year, please don't beat yourself up. You may not have learned the violin as you originally intended. You might not have finished that novel that you were going to do in lockdown. You might not have mastered the art of homeschooling. I think very few of us did. But you know what? If your faith's still going strong and you're still treating the church as your family, Paul would say, you're doing great. As far as I can see, that would mean that God would say the same thing too. Well done. Let's not lose heart. Let's just keep going, shall we? Now, as I finish, I understand that things are not as black and white, maybe, as I've painted them in this talk. You, you may be thinking, well, I don't know how my faith is. I don't know how my love is. Maybe my faith is still stranded, standing. Being strong might be an overstatement. On the other side, you may have clocked out entirely from the family over the last year. Perhaps your involvement in Church Central is basically listening to these talks. Well, listen, there's a degree in which we just got to let the God's word sit with us and do what it needs to do. If you feel convicted, I'd urge you to sit up and take notice. Possibly for some of you, you're not doing as well as you thought you were doing and you need to attend to stuff. But actually, wherever you want to place yourself, I want to bring us all together to close by praying over us the prayer uh, that Paul prays in verses 11 to 13, because actually wherever we're at, whether we feel encouraged or convicted by this message, I think we could all do with this type of stuff. This is what I want to pray for all of you. May God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus bring us to you very soon. And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow, just as our love for you overflows. May he, as a result, make your heart strong, blameless and holy as you stand before God our Father when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people. And all God's people said,